This is Unfilter, episode 166 for November 18th, 2015. The Paris attacks are reigniting the debate about privacy versus security. The intelligence community says new encryption technologies may have helped the attackers hide their plans. Edward Snowden and Edward Snowden's NSA leaks are being blamed for revealing government surveillance methods that could help terrorists avoid detection. Welcome to Unfiltered Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly show that's distracting you from all of that TV you shouldn't be watching. It's like vegetables for your brain. My name is Chris, and this is episode 166 of Jupiter Broadcasting's probably most controversial show at that. <laughs> Man, this has been a touch-and-go show this week because we had a lot of crazy storms here in the Pacific Northwest. I wasn't sure if I'd have power to be able to do the show, and I was blown away at the scope of this week's show. It is a huge show this week. On Friday, I thought... Wow, next week's show is going to be big. Friday morning is going to be a big show. I was even telegramming with Mr. Chase. He's like, wow, man, you're going to have a huge show. They got Jihadi John. It's like, I know, it's crazy. And then Saturday happened in Paris. And there's so much to cover, so much in every category that we typically cover this week in cyber and terrorism and laws and even a high note. There's so much to get into in episode 166 of the Unfilter Show. We are going to break down what happened in Paris and include a few different angles you probably haven't heard from anywhere else. But before we get into that, we're going to kind of transition. We're going to kind of do a nice slope. And we're going to start with cyber because we got a good technical audience with a good head on their shoulders that love these issues. And sometimes these are my favorite ones to break down. So we start with Iran. Revolutionary Guard reporting to be behind, reportedly behind the White House cyber attacks. Now let's break this down, because now we got CISPA or CISA. This should be no problem. There's new reports today that Iran's Revolutionary Guard is behind recent cyber attacks <gasps> on White House personnel. According to the Wall Street Journal, some of the hacking victims included the State Department employees in the Office of Iranian Affairs. Garrett Tenney joins us now live in Washington. So hey who there. do they believe was hacked and do we know why? What were they looking for? Well, Martha, in addition to administration officials, it's also journalists and academics who were among those that had their emails and social media accounts hacked by Iran's Revolutionary Guard That's just in the last few weeks, according to the Wall Street Journal. Officials told the paper that while Iran has been conducting regular cyber warfare against the U.S. for years, those attacks have surged in the last month, starting around the same time a fourth Iranian-American, Saimak Namazi, was arrested by Iranian security forces. The U.S. is investigating for possible connections between the two, but one administration official told the journal they believe the cyber attacks are linked to the arrest of dual citizens and others. Friends of Namazi say they're worried the Revolutionary Guard is carrying out the attacks to gather anything it can to build a false espionage case against him, much like it has done to other Iranian-Americans. Martha? Mm. So what's the White House saying about all this, Garrett? Well, so far, the White House isn't commenting on this, but it's no secret the administration was hoping the Iran nuclear deal would lead to better relations and greater cooperation with Tehran. This latest wave of cyber attacks, coupled with the arrest of several Iranian Americans in recent months, makes those improved relations much more difficult. Yesterday, thousands of Iranians took to the streets chanting death to America as they celebrated the 36-year anniversary of the start of the Iran hostage cult crisis. Last week, Republican Mark Mark Kirk continued criticizing the Obama administration for not being tough enough on Iran, saying 
Iran's threatening behavior will worsen if the administration does not work with Congress to enact stronger measures mm-hmm. to pushing back. Don't buy it. Don't buy it. I'm not, well, here, I'll let him finish. Including targeted pressure against Iran's Revolutionary Guard. So, ladies and gentlemen, in front of me right here, I have the Unfiltered Red Book, where we make predictions, we write them down. Some of these I make off-air, most all of them I make on-air, uh, like this one uh, from episode 160 of the Unfiltered Show. Uh, the U.S. has an agreement with China over cyber attacks, and I write in episode 160, China's constant blame for all cyber attacks will shift to Iran. Will shift to Iran. Well, let's just go ahead and cross that one off. Ladies and gentlemen, it was an obvious one coming. I mean, give me a break. Of course, now they're the new bad guy, and it helps put pressure on Obama because the right really hates, really, really hates that nuke deal. Really hates that. Uh, all right, so let's go into the UK for a minute, and they have a new surveillance bill that'll help them listen and, you know, and stop terrorists virtual new surveillance bill that's been proposed in the UK Parliament. It would grant government agencies more access to data. Artis Polyboyka's in London. She's listening in. Very good uh, <laughs> pun on the word there, listening in, isn't it? Very apt. Tell us about this uh, very controversial bill. Well, at the moment, Theresa May says with the law currently as it is, it allows the police to catch criminals who plan and discuss their crimes over the telephone, but it doesn't allow the police to view their online communications. So things like WhatsApp messages and Facebook uh, messenger communications. And she says that that is wrong, that the law needs to be brought into line with the digital age. bring it into line. You have to bring it into line. And you know, if you look back at the U.S., we are just not getting the job done. We are not answering the call of cyber attacks. We need more funding. We need more American contractors. government agencies are being faced with a broadening range of cyber-based threats, but the government, it seems, has largely failed to tackle the issue head-on. That's according to a report by the U.S. government's accountability office. According to the paper, in 2006, agencies faced some 5,500 cyber incidents. That number has drastically increased then, uh, reaching nearly... 70,000 last year alone. Now, what defines a cyber incident? And has that definition changed (laughs) since the years? I mean, I'm willing to bet what we considered a cyber incident in 20, I'm sorry, in 2006 is not what we consider a cyber incident in 2014. That could explain a lot of it. See, this is a word game that all the media plays, a cyber incident. A cy- well, who defines what a cyber incident does? Is it, is, is, it, is it the completely, completely backward su- Congress? Do they determine that? Is it a consulting group? Is it an interest group? Who defines what that is? However, according to the report, the government hasn't followed up on 40% of the recommendations outlined to improve cybersecurity. The U.S. media quickly shifted the blame for a large portion of those attacks onto China. Officials revealing possibly the biggest cyber attack on the U.S. government. According to officials, evidence points to hackers working for the Chinese military. And this has been the last year. Like, this is a perfect example of just talking about. It's been China, 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 China. Now, Iran. Chinese military cyber attacks on U.S. targets. The massive Chinese hack of U.S. government computers. The hackers have links to the Chinese government. Chinese-sponsored hackers were responsible. Well, we spoke. Now, mark my words. Now it's going to be 
That's been the last couple of years. Now it's going to be Iranian. Iranian. China's not going away. Absolutely. Not, I'm, I'm not saying they're going away, but it's going to be a watch. More and more Iran. The cybersecurity expert, Mark Rogers, who told us that pinning the blame on Beijing doesn't address the broader issue of the problem. If you look at the reports that certain organizations like Mandiant have been producing, they point to a lot of these cyber attacks coming from China. My suspicion, though, personally, is that this is not the whole picture. I think this is a a focus on some readily attributable targets. While I suspect there's probably a lot more going on behind the scenes, I honestly think we're in the middle of a full-fledged cyber war. There you go. There you go. And then let's talk about this one. We're going to get more into the ISIS stuff. Uh, but I know a lot of you in the chat room are chomping at the bit on this one. Uh, the PlayStation, did you know it's a weapon for terrorists? Turns out. You are looking live at a police raid in Brussels. We're learning more about how many terrorists may have communicated and planned the Paris attack, perhaps in this Brussels neighborhood. They might have been using video game systems on the Internet, the same kind you've got in your house right now. Kurt, the cyber guy, joins us now. Kurt, tell us about how PlayStation <laughs> 4... right may actually have been involved in the planning and plotting of that this attack. Is, those are the reports coming out this morning. We're talking about a game changer here. Uh, oh, a game changer. Uh, in terms of, we already know, and intelligence officials will already tell you that Sony PlayStation 4 and the PlayStation Network, where you can chat mm-hmm. between these gaming consoles. You, Not Microsoft. You can have voice conversations. You can send messages. Uh, you can play a game together. You could put images inside of a game that could be code to transfer to somebody. We already know that that has been used in the past. Now, see, we're in bed with Microsoft. They tell us everything. By terror suspects. But we don't know if it was used in this particular event. Then why are you talking about it, you morons? You morons. You fear-mongering morons. Was used in this particular event. Oh, oh, oh. Yet. Oh, okay, okay, okay. All right, just just checking. So yeah, I know a lot of you in the chat room have been talking about that, uh, and it turns out to be completely crap. Completely crap. Also, if you are an Unfiltered supporter, I encourage you to go in there and check out in our cyber section uh, the uh, campaign, campaign donations privacy issues. If you donate to a presidential campaign, there's a very good chance your privacy will be compromised and sold. So there is a clip in the uh, Unfiltered supporter sync that talks about that. But uh, I want to transition into our Russia stuff right now so we can get to the main story today because it's pretty important and it's really what I want to focus on. Uh, and so there is uh, something that happened this week that uh, would have been really 20 minutes of content for this show if the uh, shootings in uh, Paris and Beirut hadn't happened. And this is – there's so much here. It's so rich uh, that it, we may come back to this another day. But I, I have a clip here that condenses this uh, pretty beautifully and I have to play it for you. So we've often talked about on the Unfilter show about the supposed moderate rebels in Syria. And I have often said there's no such thing as a moderate rebel. What all of these uh, folks over there fighting are, are essentially hired guns. They're getting paid. They're getting armed. They're getting paid. And they're getting told what to do. Some of them are doing it for ideology. But in reality, they're getting paid. They get paid and they do what the highest bidder tells them to do. And so when you arm them, when you give them U.S. guns, when you give them U.S. tanks or guns or ships or whatever you, I don't know, when you give them ammunition even, when you give them radios, you know, like it does, when you give them things 
when you give them assets, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I mean, you, you imagine what it is. We, we've seen the Toyota trucks. We figure it's ammunition, guns, and radios. It's no. But I, the reason I said tanks is because there was actually there was, there was a story that I have linked in the show notes about tanks. It's, it's incredible. Uh, but anyways, uh, getting back on point, uh, when you see this, you know instinctively, well, if that is the U.S. that is arming them, how do they control where those things go? And then we say, as the U.S., we say, well, we give it to the to the moderate rebels. We give it to the moderate rebels, the ones that are moderate. Well, we've said for a long time here on the show there's no such thing as the moderate rebel. Well, here is a clip that essentially says that very same thing. Essentially what happens is they just move on. They work in certain groups for certain times and then they get absorbed by other groups. Some of them are con- – those groups are moderate. Some of them are considered extreme and it is just sort of an ebb and flow. The U.S. has reiterated its support for the so-called moderate opposition in Syria, despite a State Department official admitting, too, that some of the backed rebels have gone on to join an al-Qaeda affiliate. State official. State official is Victoria Newland. We are accelerating the work we are doing to support the moderate Syrian opposition. I'm driving off laughing. This is what I'll say. <laughs> Victoria Newland sat there for a while and covered a lot of things that I would love to get into this week, but it's just not newsworthy compared to the other things we have to cover. But her testimony was very revealing. And this next part of it is, uh, well, this is the next part is exactly what I want you to hear. It's very critical. I'm going to start over. We are accelerating the work we are doing to support the moderate Syrian opposition. News for a Front, uh, which is an al-Qaeda affiliate has absorbed, uh, as have other smaller groups, have absorbed a number of what we would have previously called the modern opposition. Now, she talks like she's hopped up on too many painkillers, so I'm going to just rewind a little bit here. But what she's saying is the moderate rebels that we have armed, those groups, some of those groups, have been absorbed by groups that are affiliated with al-Qaeda. Essentially, just walk down this path with me, guns, money, and trucks— Right into Al-Qaeda's hands. As have other smaller groups have absorbed a number of what we would have previously called the modern opposition. There you go. I don't know. You, you can watch the rest of the clip in the uh, supporter sync if you're curious. Uh, I just thought that was um, – well, there it is right there. It is exactly what we have been saying on this show since we started covering this particular particular issue. Now, if we could, uh, if you wouldn't mind, uh, chat room, and uh, I'd like to pull the crank here and uh, – Random clip. Here we go. Oh, oh, geez. Oh, uh oh. Yikes. This is a dead body one. Oh, this is not a good random clip, but uh, well, what? this is what happens when you work for Putin and you travel to D.C. A former aide to Russian President Vladimir Putin found dead in a Washington, D.C. hotel. Mikhail Leeson was Russia's press minister until 2004. Russian media is reporting he died of a heart attack. It is unclear why he was in Washington. Leeson is known for leading the Kremlin's efforts to censor Russia's independent television outlets. That's how we go. That's how we roll. There you go. Little diversion there I thought I would uh, mention. Now, back on track here. A lot of times we talk about Russia amping things up, doing test flights and things like that, real aggressive things. And then the U.S. will do something very aggressive that doesn't seem to get reported on at all or gets reported on as a great thing. Look what the U.S. is doing to protect our allies and never really gets reported as the U.S. is being aggressive and threatening Russia. Uh, if you've not really seen what I've talked about, maybe you're new to the Unfiltered Show, I present you a perfect example of this. 
Okay, how about this this morning as U.S. defense officials are considering a new strategy to detour Russian aggression in Eastern Europe and in the Middle East. Now, this report was before the Paris attacks, before the G20 conference, before major, major, major shifts in our approach with Russia in Syria happened. There have been fundamental changes to Putin's approach to Assad, and there have been fundamental changes on who Putin is bombing. This report was before then. The plan involves something we haven't seen for a while, sending more troops to Europe to boost American presence on the continent. They've already stepped up training exercises. We saw the parachuting exercise last week in a piece here on this program. In case of a showdown with Moscow on the continent. Talk about rewinding, folks. Lieutenant Colonel Ralph Peters is a Fox News strategic analyst, and he joins us now. Colonel, welcome. Good morning. Always good to have you with us. You know, so I'm reading this this morning, and I'm hearing about, you know, the generals saying that we need to beef up our presence in Europe. You never know when Russia's going to come, you know, sort of marching across the continent. I thought it reminded me of that moment between the debates with uh, Barack Obama and Mitt Romney. You know, Uh they're calling for their foreign policy back. Now we're going all the way back to the 1940s, it appears. So this is sort of uh, – a lot of times these things happen in political relations, just sort of positioning, right, to kind of make yourself sound serious, make yourself look uh, really important, uh, make your position seem really drastic. So that way when you go to the table, there's a lot at stake. I wouldn't be surprised if that's just what's at play there. All right. So I've been uh, obviously kind of rushing to this point. Um, this 14th of November, there was some pretty tragic events that happened. And I want to walk you through sort of systematically what happened and then let's discuss it. So if you're not even totally current or if maybe you only are ancillary aware of what happened, we're going to kind of go in the moment, what happened day of, and then we're going to move to present day. So that way you kind of have the complete picture, which is pretty important when you actually want to have an educated conversation. Good evening. We start with the breaking news out of Paris and what at least at this moment looks to be a city under terror attack on several fronts. The reports have been coming in rapidly. We expect many details will change. But what we can piece together so far, the Associated Press reporting there have been two suicide attacks and one bombing outside a soccer stadium. There have also been shootings and a large number of people have been taken hostage. French television citing police in reporting as many as 60 people are dead. Obviously, those numbers Tonight, have France changed. has closed its borders with the rest of Europe. We have extensive coverage. Let's start with Keir Simmons now on what we know at this hour. We'll stop here since that uh, report is going to be out of date. But if you are intellectually curious, it is in the show notes. Uh, Let me bring you up more to exactly what has happened from a more overview standpoint. So that way you just know the raw details. Three teams of attackers struck six sites across Paris. Details are now emerging about who the attackers were, their links to each other, and to ISIS in Syria and Iraq. Among the assailants, a 29-year-old French citizen who had been arrested eight times between 2004 and 2010, but never jailed. Three of the attackers lived in Belgium. They were not known to French intelligence. The cars used by the attackers were rented by a French citizen in Belgium prior to the attack. A Syrian passport was found outside the football stadium, and the Greek government said one of the attackers was a Syrian refugee who passed through Greece on October 3rd. All seven attackers wore suicide bomb vests. They also used AK-47 Kalashnikovs, according to the French prosecutor. Three individuals porteurs d'armes de guerre en sorte, 
Three individuals carrying military weapons got out, burst into the hall and opened fire while the concert was going on. The terrorists mentioned Syria and Iraq during negotiations. Convenient. Now, moving right along, every time you heard a ding there, by the way, I think this was probably an indication of where maybe intelligence agencies probably could have caught something. Uh, And then here is the specific timeline of events because things really happened uh, pretty fast and were fairly shocking. And especially you could hear like with the NBC report there, even as they went on air, they didn't have the complete picture. They weren't giving accurate numbers. So I want to make sure you get those. Well, so far, attacks have been confirmed in five different locations in Paris, a concert hall, a stadium, two restaurants and a bar, while reports suggest gunfire in at least two other areas of the city. Let's take a look at a timeline of just how the tragedy unfolded. At around 9 p.m. local time, the first use of firearms occurred at a restaurant on Rue de Charon, just east of the city centre, killing at least 11 customers. Less than an hour later, explosions went off outside the Stade de France stadium, causing more deaths and injuries. And then seven minutes later, police reported a hostage crisis at the Bataclan Theatre. Within half an hour, another restaurant was targeted by a gun attack. And these are just four of seven locations, as we've been seeing, where terrorists launched assaults on Friday night. So pretty significant and pretty coordinated. So happening very close together in various different locations uh, with uh, incredible, incredible effectiveness. Well coordinated, well executed, obviously well organized as well. And I think it was uh, pretty shocking to see it go down that way. Fascinating, too, for me personally, because I was reading stories – reading – I'm reading the chat room. I was watching a story about Vietnam and about how they fought in the, and, and about how they sort of would execute different plans on like a holiday where everybody thought there was going to be a ceasefire. And if you're familiar with the history of this, you know what I'm talking about. And they did, they did a very coordinated attack during the ceasefire. Watching this though, something felt off the entire time. And one of the things that really bothered me about this is is really uh, ISIS very quickly claimed credit for it, and uh, the timing the timing that they did this was was extremely unfortunate for them. They could not have picked a worse time to do this attack, because they decided to make a very public attack against citizens in France, in Paris. Right when all of the world leaders of the most important countries were getting together at the G20 summit in Turkey. At a perfect opportunity for them to all step aside and have off-the-record meetings huddled together to discuss things. There was literally not a better opportunity for all of the world leaders to be together in the same place for an official reason and have opportunities to have off-the-record meetings and discuss military strategy They simply could not have picked a worse time for them. It's like they're suicidal. Russia is also targeting ISIS strongholds in Raqqa. The country fired several cruise missiles at Syria on Tuesday. It happened just a day after President Obama met with Vladimir Putin in Turkey. Margaret Brennan is traveling with the president in Manila in the Philippines. She shows us how a potential alliance between the two powers is superpowers is developing. Picture it for a second. Russia, who has been the bad guy since the Olympics, since Crimea, since Snowden, the absolute bad guy. 
Russia, who has been doing nothing but bombing the people who are trying to, trying to take down Assad, all of a sudden they're part of the strategy. The, look at this. All of a sudden, Obama's sitting down with, with Putin and they're having a discussion and now we're aligned. And now, now they're a superpower. Now, remember a few weeks ago when we played a clip from Obama saying they're not a superpower? Now they're a superpower. Look, look at the timing that ISIS condemned, condemned themselves with this timing. You know, you'd think they would have known better, too. They literally could not have had a better opportunity because, you see, if they had done this any other time, Obama would have had to call Putin. And legalities mandate that there would have been records on both sides. Recordings, calls, all of that. They could not have picked a better time. Good morning. Or worse. Good morning. Well, Russia's already coordinating airstrikes with France. And here in Manila today, the Russian prime minister said the best way to combat ISIS is to unite with the West. And President Obama seemed to agree, but he said there's one catch. First, Russia has to help end the Syrian war. I've also welcomed Moscow going after ISIL. Just days after Russia launched its first significant strikes against ISIS, President Obama extended an offer. If we get... uh, Now that we got to parse these words closely, because one thing we know is the ultimate goal in Syria is to get Assad out of power. And that is truly what the Obama administration has been after since day one. A, a better understanding with Russia about the process for bringing an end to the Sir, uh, Syrian civil war. Which means getting rid of Assad. That obviously opens up more opportunities for coordination uh, with respect to ISIL. Well, guess what? You can check the show notes. We have links on this. Putin is prepared to have Assad step down. They've already discussed it. The strikes were a major shift. Russia spent weeks bombing Syrian rebels, some U.S.-backed, who are fighting to unseat President Bashar al-Assad. It may be that now, having seen ISIL take down uh, one of their uh, airliners in a, uh, a horrific accident. You know what's happened? Putin's look to the situation realizes there really is no option except for to have Assad step down. If he wants to maintain good relations with with the EU, if he wants to maintain good relations with the U.S., this is the perfect opportunity. He can switch over sides. He's got a great excuse now. The Paris attacks give him the political cover with his people to make this shift. Assad's fate was already spelled out. And in fact, we have a link in the show notes. There's a report that Assad visited Moscow on October 28th, had a meeting with Putin, where Putin told him, you're going to have to step down. So Putin goes to the G20, prepared to talk to Obama and say, I will agree on a transition politically in Syria. And then this attack in Paris happens, which gives everyone the political cover to amp everything up. That, that reorientation continues. Now President Obama is relying on Vladimir Putin to help broker a ceasefire in Syria. You see that right there? <laughs> Do you see what that is right there? And those of you listening, we have uh, we have uh, uh, sitting right in front of us. We have uh, what's her face? Uh, chat room. I'm, I'm blanking on her name. Um, the, the ambassador. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, we have Obama to the left. We have one of Putin's guys, and then to the right, Putin. Um, 
she come on oh geez i miss come on come on chat room help me out on on her name she's been in the obama administration for a long time she's a good friend of obama she was one of the people on the sunday talk show saying that the benghazi attack was because of the youtube video i'm really close but i can't get it anyways you can see them huddling these are these beloved off the meeting records no microphones no documentation they sit down man to man Woman to woman, whatever, and they have these conversations. Man to man, in this case, and they have these conversations. Su- yes, yeah, Susan Rice. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, it's Susan Rice. You got Susan Rice sitting uh, cr- across from one of Putin's guys, and then across from each other on the left and right are Putin and Obama. They're huddling here, and here they're de- they're literally deciding the fate of Syria, a sovereign country. It is. It is. Fascinating that they made this huge mistake and gave these two people this opportunity. It is fascinating. What, what a what a blow to ISIS. And now France, Russia, and the U.S. are all working together to to bomb ISIS. Continues. Now President Obama is relying on Vladimir Putin to help broker a ceasefire in Syria, which would eliminate an ISIS safe haven. Everybody wants to hit ISIS, and I think that can be done. Kremlin analysts say Putin may simply be seizing an opportunity to repair frayed relations with the West. I think that the Paris bombing has produced a short-term kumbaya with Mr. Putin. I don't think it's going to last. I don't think Obama or Putin trust each other, but they need each other right now. Now, the coalition needs to coordinate intelligence to track and target ISIS leaders, and that may increase after the French president visits both Moscow and Washington next week. But, Charlie, there is already some tension because today the Russian's top diplomat said he compared President Obama's reluctance to send ground troops to a cat who wants to eat a fish but refuses to get its feet wet. Uh, wouldn't it be interesting if Russia ends up sending in the ground troops and we do the air support? Now, uh, I am not surprised that this ca- this coming together happened. I don't know what to make of this story. And those of you who are real eagle-eyed are waiting for me to talk about this. And it's funny because I know it's one of these stories. It's like I feel pressure to tell you more about it, but there's literally no extra information. But if it happens, it could crack open the people who are behind ISIS. Putin at the G20 summit says that their data has been collected, reviewed, analyzed, and shows that they show that ISIS is financed by 40 countries, some of which were at the G20. It seems like they're ready to drop names, but he stops there. He doesn't drop names. I'll play you the clip. Based on our data, I provided examples of the financing of different Islamic State units in different countries by private individuals. Financing, as we have established, comes from 40 countries, and there are some of the G20 states among them. Some of them, Saudi Arabia, I'm looking at you. I wonder who else. (laughs) All right, so now you – so there you go. There was the attacks. There was gunmen. It was awful – um, 120 dead in uh, 129 dead in uh, Paris, I believe. 44 dead Bay, dead in Beirut. Uh, very tra- uh, tragic. Uh, and as a response, I've never seen a response actually quite like this. I don't. I don't. There has been, I believe, as of this recording, over 350 raids by the police to track people down. Raids are spreading across Europe to track these attackers. Fox News alert now. Numerous breaking details now live again from Paris, 3 o'clock in the afternoon here local time. (laughs) 
In fact, all of the anchors, you got uh, David Muir, he's out there. I mean, a lot of them have gone to Paris. This is how you know this is a huge story. This is a fundamental change in their narrative about ISIS. This changes everything. The West war on, on Daesh, Daesh, ISIS, ISIL, the Islamic State, IS, has changed. The publics, you guys have all seen it on your Facebook feeds. Everybody has changed their profile picture with the flag colors. This is – ISIS has now officially graduated to the ultimate boogeyman for all of Western society. And that's why our top paid anchors are standing in Paris saying exactly the same things from the exact same teleprompters they could have said in front of their cheesy green screens back in their studios. This is a huge shift. This is a huge, huge shift. Overnight, French authorities raiding more than 100 different locations throughout the country, bringing the total to close to 300 raids in 48 hours. In addition, the French military is striking ISIS targets again in eastern Syria, dropping 16 bombs overnight. In coordination with the U.S. military as well as the U.S. military targeted the supply line. The crude oil supplies that help fuel the funding for ISIS today. Much more on all this as we get breaking news on the Eiffel Tower within the last hour. It, too, was closed yet again. Good morning. Split broadcast again today. I'm Bill Hemmer live in Paris. And Martha, good morning to you. Good morning to you, Bill. Good morning, everybody at home. I'm Martha McCallum in New York. So as Bill was just saying, France moving full steam ahead today, taking this fight to the front lines with ISIS, and they are urging their allies to do the same. We're getting new reports now that the U.S. targeted the terror mastermind behind those attacks who you see on the left-hand side of your screen. Unfortunately, they were not able to find him in the weeks before the horrific events that unfolded in Paris. Bill has more on uh, all these developments this morning from Paris. Bill. And Martha, it is more and more tantalizing how the supposed mastermind communicated over the past year alone. He was on video within the past year boasting about how easy it was for him to travel from Syria into his home country of Belgium and back again, barely even uh, being noticed there. We have Team Fox coverage throughout the morning here. Greg Palcott with us again live today, who just wrapped up an interview with John Kerry, the Secretary of State, arriving here late last night in Paris time. But first, Greg, let's begin with the raids from overnight. What did they find and what happened? As you just noted, uh, Bill, yeah, uh, the investigation into the attacks by the authorities here, absolutely full bore. Overnight, the exact number, 128 raids on various terror targets throughout this country. That's in a single night a couple of days ago. Also found last night, another car believed to be used by the attackers when they went on their mad terror rampage, killing 129 here last Friday night. Remember, there are seven known and dead attackers. The search for the eighth attacker continues in Belgium. And yes, there are new reports that there had been a U.S.-led coalition strike against the presumed mastermind of the attacks. Let's get to that mastermind of the attacks. Uh, he seems to be an interesting fellow. He's the ringleader, The suspected ringleader of the horrific attack in Paris is believed to be Abdelhamid Aboud. He is a Belgian national in his 20s who lives in the Molenbeek district of Brussels.
Intelligence suggests that he has close ties to ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. This is one of those uh, videos I talked about where they create this for social media. They want you to share it around so that way everybody on Facebook can be self-entitled and super educated and a smart, 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 sharp person because they're following these people and these things. That he may be the go-between between senior ISIS leadership and operatives in Europe. Abaoud left Belgium to travel to Syria in 2014. It's believed that's when he linked up with ISIS. Earlier this year, just after the Charlie Hebdo attacks, Belgian commandos raided a safe house in Verviers. Now, two ISIS operatives were killed in the gunfight. A third was taken into custody. And inside the home, they found weapons, fake travel documents, and a precursor to TATP, the same kind of explosives that were used in the suicide vests in the Paris attack. Officials say that the Belgian cell, comprised of 10 members, was in the final stages of a major attack in that country. The link with the Paris attack is that Abouad is believed to be the ringleader of that cell as well. Now, Abouad was apparently featured in the February issue of the online ISIS magazine, Dabiq. And now, where does that magazine come from, do you suppose? This online ISIS magazine. Let's see. Let me let's just play this for a second. ISIS magazine, Dabiq. Do you guys have anybody in the chat room? Does anybody in the chat room know where that magazine comes from? Do you have any ideas, any guesses where it comes from? Oh, System D, you're right on it, bro. Very nice. Yeah, Cutter, it goes out of Qatar. There you go. Cutter, Cutter, Qatar, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, all of the videos come out of Cutter, the magazines, uh, the infographs, all out of Cutter. Isn't that interesting? I, I just, I can't figure it. And in it, he boasted of being able to travel freely between Europe and Syria. He is quoted as saying, my name and picture were all over the news, but I was able to stay in their homeland, plan operations against them, and leave safely. And the route he may have taken, according to senior Belgian counter-terror officials, is traveling through Greece, back and forth from Europe to Syria. After traveling to Syria, Abaoud's family in Belgium heard nothing, and DHS says they were notified that he had been killed in October during fighting in that region. Officials now believe that this was all part of an elaborate plot where Abaoud faked his own death so he could travel easily back and forth without anyone knowing. Dun, dun, dun. All right, so this is our big bad guy. This is our boogeyman. This is the mastermind. So the police in, in Paris are like, you know, they are Johnny on the spot with this stuff. Uh, it turns out, though, they didn't crack encryption. It wasn't anything like that. It was they listened to some phone calls and they got a tip. And so they go after this guy. Welcome to CBS This Morning. French police targeted terror suspects in an early morning raid that brought gunfire to a Paris suburb. The police assault left two people dead and others in custody. The standoff at an apartment building lasted for hours. The raid targeted the alleged mastermind of the Paris terror attacks that killed 129 people. CBS Evening News anchor and managing editor Scott Pelley is at the scene in Saint-Denis, just north of Paris. Scott, good morning. Another example of on location here. Good morning. Uh, the French prosecutors are telling us this morning that it was telephone surveillance and eyewitnesses. Oh, eyewitnesses. You mean like the same kind of police reporting that we've had since the dawn? 
dawn of police reporting, eyewitnesses, not mass surveillance, not anything like breaking encryption or satellite surveillance or drone monitoring or any of that. Nope, nope, we got a tip. That led the police to the apartment here in Saint-Denis early this morning. As you said, two suspects have been killed. About a half dozen have been arrested. And we also understand that several police officers were also injured in the operation. Elizabeth Palmer has been covering the investigation for us all along. Elizabeth, what do we know? Well, the prosecutor has told us that this is unprecedented. A gun battle like this in the city, police being fired on for hours. As soon as the police moved in, the shooting started. With the neighborhood sealed off, SWAT teams zeroed in on an apartment. Shortly afterwards, said the prosecutor's office, a woman suicide bomber wearing an explosive vest blew herself. Resident Alexia Desbos was woken by the noise. And I heard uh, some explosions, four or five explosions. And then I opened the door and I heard uh, gunshots, many, many gunshots. The battle went on for an hour and a half. The mastermind of the Paris attacks himself may have been in the apartment. A police official said Abdelhamid Abaoud, who was initially thought to be in Syria, was now believed to have been hiding out in the building with five heavily armed people. The owner of the apartment was on the street nearby, and he told French reporters he'd been asked by a friend as a favor to lend his place for a few days to people he didn't know. He's since been arrested. Other residents of the building were evacuated during lulls in the shooting. And for some, it was a harrowing wait. My son was screaming, says this man. We threw ourselves under the bed for more than an hour until the police escorted us out. They told us the building was going to explode. Two men, partly naked, were led out of the building by the police, as well as an injured officer, one of several hurt during this major operation. So, Elizabeth, what do we know about this man that the French describe as the mastermind of what happened on Friday, Abdelhamid Ababoud? He's 28 years old. He's Belgian. He lived in that suburb, which is now well known to have been home to many radicalized uh, fighters who went to Syria, Molenbeek. In in, uh, Brussels. In Brussels. Um, He was radicalized, is known to have fought in Syria, very active on social media. And although he hasn't been physically present at attacks, he's suspected of planning some, including, if you'll remember, that attack on the the high-speed train in August, the one that was foiled by the two Americans aboard who wrestled the gunman to the ground. Now, there is no guarantee that they have got him. Uh, Until late last night, the police were saying they thought he was in Syria. That's where he's last popped up from. I expect if they have got him, we'll we'll hear that uh, very soon. We're still waiting. Elizabeth Palmer covering the story for us, Liz. Thank you very much. Well, as Liz just said, the big question of the hour is, have they caught the mastermind of the terrorist attacks on Friday? We'll know a little bit later today. Gail, this is all as I record totally this. Thank you, Scott. And Elizabeth Palmer in Saint-Denis. As I record this, this is all still very much developing, so I actually don't have an answer on that yet. Um, the Unfiltered show has really, um, I, I feel like it has been here for some incredible stories. And it is a privilege to cover these. It's great to have producer Matt on board now, too. 
and to track all of these things in real time as they happen and to parse them and to present you sort of a mix down of the best of the best. I tried to make sure I played clips. I mean, can, you can imagine. A story like this develops constantly. The clips are constantly begin. We're collecting the clips. We're organizing them. These co- these clips cover these things. This cover this clip covers this thing. So we don't need it in this clip. And then they do another raid, or something changes, and and you have to reorder all of the clips. This has been a monster story to follow. So if you like what we're doing here and want to keep us going, Patreon.com/slash/unfiltered to support us. I really do appreciate it. Very much. Uh, And so as following this, I thought there's a lot of different angles for this show to cover. I mean, we could do the refugee angle. Uh, We could cover uh, Russia's angle on this and and their flight, which we're going to talk about more in a bit. Uh, There's so many different aspects. And I thought what would probably be best in our wheelhouse is to look at, without any merit, seems to be the attack on encryption again. They're using this as an excuse to go after encryption. Even though you just heard in that report, they tracked down where they thought this supposed ringleader was by a tip and, and listening to his phone calls. But it was an eyewitness tip too. And they, before that, before that eyewitness tip, they thought he was in Syria or dead. But yet they need to crack encryption. Uh, Catherine Harrod's working her sources. She's live now. Uh, Catherine, what have you found out about surveillance and now the mastermind and this uh, this manhunt in this country and in Belgium as well for a second? Well, Bill, in the last few minutes, we've been able to confirm new information about this chatter that was 72 hours before the Paris attack. We were first to report on the weekend that there were four credible ISIS-linked accounts that began sharing messages 72 hours out, sharing images of weapons, the Eiffel Tower, and blessings of support for the mission, including a reference to a woman. This now dovetails with eyewitness accounts at the Bataclan that among the attackers was also a female operative. In addition, a member of the House Intelligence Committee has just told Fox News that there are indications that the suspects were using a type of encryption known as Telegram. Oh, no, no, I love Telegram. This is an app which is a secure app which cannot be viewed by law enforcement. (laughs) Secondly, the other option that's being considered is that the suspects were using couriers to share messages. And the third is using PlayStation for that kind of peer-to-peer communication is also a workaround for law enforcement. So we're learning more about the suspects, the chatter beforehand, and the type of communication they were using, Bill. There you go. So that is the groundwork in which now our stooges, who are always defenders of our intelligence agencies like Diane Feinstein and Mike Rogers, and of course, Mr. Brennan, the director of the CIA, who have constantly been bat- – or, or James Comey, the director of the FBI, who have been constantly battling against encryption, demanding backdoors to technology to get surveillance built into the product. And so these stories only build their case. Stories – like this one. They planned a coordinated, complex attack. And there's new information tonight on tight operational security and communication among these terrorists. Now remember, we're talking about a massively sophisticated attack across multiple areas with incredible civilian casualties and brutality. 
all organized that was not even detected by our intelligence agencies with their massive surveillance, the GCHQ, the French intelligence agencies, and the NSA with their entire worldwide surveillance dragnets, with their interagency sharing, the five eyes all set up, all sending their data to Israel, and nobody caught any of these attackers because maybe they were using encryption. Investigators have found evidence that the operatives tied to the Paris attackers frequently changed cell phones, switched cars, even searched for possible listening devices. And according to counterterrorism and intelligence officials, there's evidence that they used encryption. Maybe they're using encrypted messaging apps. They uh, do a very good job of hiding whatever you're saying uh, from being intercepted by somebody who like a government. I feel bad for this stooge. So this guy, he works at, you know, he's, he's a good guy. He knows about encryption. He's a college professor. And, you know, CNN comes up here and asks him a whole bunch of loaded questions. And he just tells him, you know, those, these answers. And they can take these clips and spin it into, well, look, this expert on encryption, which is this jumbled code, is telling us it's really just best for terrorists. There's no good use for you. Don't mind that you need it for banking or your basic communications or just verifying the identity of a website. Don't pay any attention to that. It is for scrambling code for bad guys. Encryption. Conversations chopped up into a jumble by mathematical algorithms. Code that U.S. officials say is nearly impossible to crack. We don't have the ability to break strong encryption. And so if they move to the mobile messaging app, we're going to lose them. So that's a huge worry. Apps like one called Signal encrypt phone calls. WhatsApp and an app called Telegram (gasps) encrypt text. Matthew Green, who teaches applied cryptography at Johns Hopkins, showed us another way terrorists can make their texts disappear on the Telegram app. You can program them to self-destruct in a few seconds. I send Green a text to meet me somewhere. He reads it. Then... Gone. And just like that, you've got no record of the communication. Telegram also has an avenue similar to Facebook and Twitter where you can post public messages. ISIS used Telegram to claim responsibility for the Paris attacks and the downing of the Russian passenger plane in Sinai. ISIS analysts say is... By the way, all of that reporting, the two things that he just cited, came from one place. The site intelligence group. The site intelligence group reported all of that. They've also been the source for the videos where they've been published online. And they've been the source for claims of other attacks, even though there's been no details. They all came from Rita Katz and the site intelligence group. You guys can go look this up. Just kind of interesting. All of this stuff, all of these revelations, one group, just one group, group. Hmm. constantly coaching its operatives on how to use secure communications. In its English language uh, publications, ISIS says, use an Android phone. They're the hardest to to crack. We know that's not even true. The intelligence agency. That's not even true at all. We, We know that's not true. Use an Android phone. They're the hardest to to crack. That's bullshit. For the intelligence agencies, use particular applications. And if this was true, if any of this was true, if using Telegram and using Android were actually the way that terrorists could completely avoid surveillance by the U.S., the media would not be reporting it because the surve- because whenever there is anything that could that could interfere with the operational surveillance of the bad guy, like oh yeah, we have intelligence that tells us they're going to bomb a soccer game, so we're going to cancel the soccer game, but we can't tell you anything about the source of the threat, the lead, or any kind of nature of the actual threat because it could endanger the ongoing investigation and intelligence operations. But then meanwhile, we'll tell you exactly, step by step with a blueprint, brand names, operating systems to use, sites to visit, how to avoid 
complete surveillance by the United States. Something there doesn't register true with me. That doesn't quite seem like how they would do it if this was fundamentally the way to, pr- pr- to plan attacks at the scale of the attack we saw in Paris. Why would you actually advertise all of this? Use an Android phone. They're the hardest to, to crack for the intelligence agencies. Use particular applications uh, that are anonymized. Uh, use Tor, which is, of course, the dark net. But with all its tech savvy, ISIS may have made one significant cyber enemy. <laughs> Anonymous, now vowing to unleash a wave of cyber attacks on ISIS in retaliation for the Paris massacre. That's how we go. Uh, that's how we roll. All right. So moving right along. Uh, so now you have to roll out the stooges. So you have laid the groundwork that telegram and encryption and scrambling communications has been the bad guy. And of course, what's the logical extension of this? How would you actually, from a legal standpoint, make this work? If you wanted to mandate backdoors, if you wanted to mandate being able to decrypt communications, would you outlaw open source too then? Because you would have to, because you can't force open source projects to do that. How would you actually make this effective? Well, you know, folks like Diane Feinstein or the director of the CIA, they don't care. Almost four days after Paris came under siege, CIA Director John Brennan says terrorists have found new ways to plan major attacks undetected. In the past several years, because of a number of unauthorized disclosures, there have been some policy and legal and other actions that are taken that make our ability collectively, internationally, to find these terrorists much more challenging. Without naming names, Brennan appeared to blame Edward Snowden, a former NSA contractor who exposed top-secret details about the agency's phone and Internet surveillance program. As a result of his disclosures, the communications companies are less cooperative with the U.S. intelligence service and law enforcement. Now, what she means by that is they now hold the metadata, right, and things like that, and then they don't want to cooperate as much. Okay, what... Look at look what an opportunity this attack has given us to just sort of neatly tie up the whole Snowden thing. Well, you know, now in retrospect, with the threat with the threat of ISIS, in retrospect, those Snowden those Snowden disclosures disclosures they did us harm. See, now ISIS knows to use encryption. If he hadn't said these things, they wouldn't be using encryption. They wouldn't know better. But now, because he said everything and he let all the docs out. And that guy, that Greenwald guy, you remember that Greenwald guy? Remember how he published it? That's all their fault now. Do you buy this? This is an, um, this is an unbelievable tidying up of the narrative. Patients companies are less cooperative with the U.S. intelligence service and law enforcement. And in fact, they're taking direct steps to challenge law enforcement and intelligence community surveillance activities. But now Brennan and others suggest potential terrorists are using encrypted messaging apps to avoid detection. I think that Silicon Valley has to take a look at their products. The moral approach. It is your moral duty. Um, Because if you create a product that allows evil monsters to communicate in this way, that's a big problem. Dianne Feinstein is the public head of the NSA. This shows the absolute need to have top surveillance, to stop criticizing the the NSA. Stop criticizing the NSA, Peter King says. Peter King, another stooge for the intelligence agency system. Rolling these guys out, they are just rolling them out. Just rolling them out. Top surveillance, to stop criticizing the, the NSA. Glenn Greenwald, who first published the Snowden document, says before the leaks, terrorists were able to keep their communications under the radar to carry out major 
attacks, including the 2005 suicide attacks in central London, the 2008 siege in Mumbai, and the April 2013 bombings at the Boston Marathon. All terrorist events that the mass surveillance failed to prevent. He says officials are trying to exploit the Paris attacks to justify increased surveillance. Don't you think after the type of bloodshed that we saw... I will remind you that after the Charlie Hebdo attacks in January, not only did France enter a state of emergency, which they have just, uh, which they are likely to renew for another three months as we record this, but they passed laws that doubled down on the surveillance. They revved up their surveillance machine to the next level in January. And then this attack happened. In Paris... Law enforcement should have the tools that they need to stop attacks like that. They already do. They got them after the Charlie Hebdo. They, they, they were unleashed. Law enforcement has had every single tool that they have asked for since September 11. The problem is that those agencies collect so much information that they have no idea what they're actually in possession of. They had collected so much, they weren't able to connect the dots. The technology industry has been a roadblock on this issue for law enforcement, but the government... Those bad technology guys. Those, the technology industry is a roadblock on helping protect you from terrorism, guys. The technology industry has been a roadblock on this issue for law enforcement, but the government keeps pressing the industry to share data when national security is at risk. But so far, Gail, privacy concerns have won out. I Thank love you, Jeff. They are so in with the CIA on CBS. It is ridiculous. Uh, and so now we fast forward to the actual raids that have occurred. They had a they monitored phone calls, which are not encrypted, and they got an eyewitness attack. They get uh, they got an eyewitness report. They get on site. They do the attacks. They do all the shooting. And guess what? They find phones. And these phones, they're not encrypted. The devices, the communications, not encrypted. Guess what they used to communicate? Does anybody know? Does anybody know what these terrorists, mastermind, the ringleader used to communicate to organize the attacks in Paris? Does anybody know? Because I got the links in the show, no- the show notes. I'll see if you can get the inference from this clip, and then we'll come back to the chat room and see if anybody can guess the communications technology that the terrorists used to coordinate the attacks. The retired FBI agent, Jeff Lanza. Jeff, good afternoon. Hi, Shep. Looks like we have seven killed in the initial attack, a search for one or two more. Now a group of about that size, apparently neutralized, for lack of a better word, and all of them with communications devices. Is that going to be a key? Absolutely. Uh, If the communications devices are unencrypted, uh, like the one they found apparently in the trash can near the concert hall uh, that related to that event, then there'll be very key information on those devices. In fact, that's what the uh, the FBI went there to help them with originally, and I'm sure the French authorities will be very interested in any electronic media that can be found in those places that were attacked today. All right, so what was the communications technology that these sophisticated terrorists were using to communicate? Now, I see several entries in there. PHPBB, Twitter, forums, PS4, smoke signals, SMS, paper... There was a lot of face-to-face communications. Does anybody want to just call out the chat room user they think is right? You can give their name right now. I'm about to pull the handle. I'll tell you which one it was. 
This is a good one. It's a good system. Oh, I see it in there twice now. Yeah, that's right. Show me the money got it right first. It turns out these sophisticated terrorists were using SMS. SMS, unencrypted over the telco networks, fully observable by the intelligence agencies. SMS. I got the links in the show notes. That's what these sophisticated terrorists. And yet this encryption debate is getting ramped up. And you know why? Oh, I know why. There's a real obvious reason why. It's because they have to. Bl- they need. They need a scapegoat. The intelligence agencies need a scapegoat. They have to be able to blame their failure to detect all of this on something. It has to be the way it is. They have. They have such egg on their face. Otherwise, they need encryption as the scapegoat, and it's a perfect opportunity to tidy up their narrative around Edward Snowden and show the damage he's done. Uh, check out the show notes this week for a ton of actual really really good stuff. Uh, I, I couldn't, when I, when I went through some of these things, I just, I had to shake my head looking at some of the stuff, but there's a lot of good stuff in the show notes this week. And, uh, uh, I, in fact, if I go through here and see, I wonder if, uh, Mike Morell, uh, big, you know, big friend of the show here, right here on the uh, unfiltered program, Mike Morell often talks about encryption. And, uh, if, uh, really, if, if intelligence failures, if the intelligence failures and encryptions and all these things, he's been on CBS News for a long time, and I want to get to him because I think that's kind of an important one. So let's talk about that. So first, let's start with the intelligence stuff. Uh, let's go there. Was there an intelligence failure in general? So much to break down, a number of challenges for investigators. So let's bring in Ron Hosko to help us break it all down. He's a former assistant director at the FBI. Ron, you were just listening to Catherine's report, uh, a number uh, of points stand out to me, significant weaponry, perhaps the use of a bomb maker. And then she went on to say it is a significant failure of intelligence. So, uh, like you said, hindsight uh, 2020, but looking forward, what can we learn from this? What can we learn from this? So let's bring in Mike Morell. He can tell us what we can learn from this and why I believe after listening to this clip, it has to be the scapegoat. For more on the Paris investigation and the response to the attacks, return again to former CIA Deputy Director Michael Morell. He is CBS News Senior Security Contributor. Michael, good morning again. Mm-hmm. Uh, following up on that report from mm-hmm. Mr. Nesbitt, uh, what is the intelligence community and the law enforcement community doing to respond? What are they looking for and how will they accomplish it? Um, so we really need to understand um, how they were able to carry out this operation. Um, it's a very complicated operation, multiple operatives. You have to get explosives. You have to get weapons, communication among a large number of people figure out how they did this and how they stayed under the radar. One of the important reasons to catch some of the guys who are at, who are out there still, particularly this potential mastermind, is to find out how they did all of that. What's the significance of that terrorist sleeper cell operating in Belgium for, for a period of time? Um, so it's clear that, that there could be sleeper cells elsewhere, right? That's, that's what it tells you. Um, it happens to be in a community in Belgium that, uh, where, where this kind of potential is, but that potential exists in Paris, in London, um, in New York. In, in New York? New York? Uh, no, I, no, that's not in the script. In, in, I, I wouldn't say New York. I would, no, no, that's why are you... Charlie, shut up. God, go to sleep. I wouldn't say New York, right? Um, the integration of Muslims in the United States is, is much better than it is in Europe. So um, I think there's a difference. You had said over the weekend about uh, President Assad of Syria being involved. You didn't say he was the solution, but he should be part of the solution. That raised a lot of hackles for a lot of people. What exactly yeah. do you mean by that? So here's my concern. My concern is that... If President Assad were to leave the scene, this is what I've been saying all along, without a new government emerging that everybody supports, 
everybody is behind. Then you have a serious shit show, just like you have in Iraq, just like you have in Libya. Then there is a real risk that the institutions of government in Syria, particularly the military, the security service, the intelligence service, could fall apart and we could end up with a much more unstable situation like we have in Libya. That's mm-hmm. just the warning that Vladimir Putin has been making. Exactly. Which I thought was actually kind of fascinating. There he goes. He just breaks away from the very thing that Vladimir Putin has been saying. I'm sorry, from the very, he goes away, he breaks away from the key approach to Syria, from the Obama administration here. He's breaking on their key approach to Syria and saying exactly what Putin's been saying. Everybody is behind. Then there is a real risk that the institutions of government in Syria, particularly the military, the security service, the intelligence service, could fall apart and we could end up with a much more unstable situation like we have in Libya. That's Mm -hmm. just the warning that Vladimir Putin has been making. Exactly. Exactly. Let me turn to the point we raised earlier, which is the U.S. policy. And you said that somebody has to tell the president it's wrong. To look him in the eye. Look at the U.S. policy that he's not saying is to get Assad out of power. In the eye. Who can do that? And how hard is it to say to the president, you're wrong? So one of the responsibilities of the leaders of the intelligence community, so the director of national intelligence and the director of CIA, is to be able to have a good enough relationship with the president to be able to have that conversation, right? Um, That is one of their responsibilities. And I don't know what they've been telling him. Um, What if they don't think he's wrong, Mike? Well, then they're obviously then they're obviously not telling him that. Right. But Mm -hmm. um, but look, given what I have seen Mm -hmm. and given my experience, I would be telling him that Mm -hmm. you'll be saying now your strategy is wrong and you should do what? Um, That's the policy conversation that then has to take place. What a cop out answer. Could you help us understand what I've got a lot of emails from friends over the weekend. What Oprah just has this one question. She keeps texting me. What does ISIS want? What do they want? That's a great question. Um, And we shouldn't call them ISIS anymore because it really doesn't make sense in this one's context. Can we call them Daesh now? And and, and there's there's an idea out there, right? The conventional wisdom is that they simply want this caliphate in Iraq and Syria. No, they want that caliphate worldwide, right, including here in the United States. So what Mike does here is he takes the fear dial, which is currently set at about a nice 7.5, and he's going to go ahead and crank that all all the way up to 12. Listen to this guy. Listen to this fear-mongering. What does that mean? It means we all live under their their very extreme religious rules about how you should conduct your life day to day. It's a real law and all that. So we're talking about developing a new strategy, the president meeting with world leaders, what that strategy should be, whether it means more boots on the ground, more intelligence, whatever it may be. Let me ask you about um, comparisons to al-Qaeda. With Osama bin Laden, Mm -hmm. we cut off the head of the snake, as the CIA described it, right? Mm -hmm. He was involved in the planning of the 9-11 attacks. What about the search for al-Baghdadi, who is the Mm -hmm. leader of ISIS. Is he personally directing these attacks, these sleeper cells? So he's a very hands-on leader, um, so that I suspect he is. Um, it's a very hierarchical organization, so the leadership matters here a lot. One of the, one of the things we learned dealing with al-Qaeda is that the key way, one of the key ways, probably the most important way to degrade a terrorist organization is to decapitate it, get rid of its leadership. Decapitated is a word they use over and over again. Obama used it last week on the show. Uh, I find this to be a a really fascinating conversation because what they're essentially saying is this one man organizing all of these different attacks, but yet all of these different attacks usually just either get claim credit on Twitter, which could be anybody, or they come from Rita Katz and the site intelligence group, which again could be anybody. 
So it, how do we really know? What, like, what information is he getting that makes it suggest it's all being led by a mastermind? This makes it sound like a boogeyman that has a leader. And the way you do that is taking these guys off the battlefield in rapid succession, one or two a week. Right? He wants to kill one or two leaders a week. Right. Not one or two every three months. But shouldn't we assume, I mean, is it wrong yeah. to assume that we have special forces or CIA or already in Syria working on this very issue? And you know we do. We have links in the show notes that uh, I am reiterating that. But yes, of course, we already do have that. We've covered that many times. We have many assets from the CIA on the ground. That's one of some of the people that Putin's been bombing. The key way of of finding the guys in order to take them off the battlefield is having the intelligence to know where they are, at what time. Infiltrating. My impression is the administration would say to this, Mike, that's exactly what we have been doing. I don't think we're doing enough of it. I don't think our intelligence is good enough. Right. I don't think we're taking enough action. Um, Otherwise, we wouldn't be removing a leader once every three, four months. We'd be moving two a week. Now, notice as Mike begins to uh, talk about this stuff, he starts to get he seems to he seems to get a little more lively here, a little more uh, woken up, maybe taking things a little more personal. You've, you've raised the thing about terrorists going dark and essentially using their phones and these encrypted apps to communicate. Oh, got to get this in here real quick. We don't have a lot of time, but we got to make sure we get the mention because this is the CBS Morning News. We have the average people watching encryption bad. No good things about encryption, not how it protects your banking or your identity. Nothing, how it's completely impossible to ban encryption. we got to get a real quick encryption bad. Real quick, Mike, can you jump to that? Are they using those same, not only in Belgium and in France and perhaps other places? Are- could they be using these same apps on their smartphone, you know, in France and Belgium? Could they be using these same apps everywhere in the world, like in Syria? Is it possible Going these apps? And essentially using their phones and these encrypted apps to communicate. Are they using those same, not only in Belgium and in France and perhaps other places, are they using those in Syria and Iraq to communicate? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So what are we... Boom, that's all you need. Now, notice how they begin to criticize the CIA in the last few questions. Morel begins to get a little defensive, and he kind of makes a mistake, as a lot of us when we get passionate do, is he kind of slips into a more casual speak. And he begins to refer to the CIA as we. We need to do, Mike, to keep ourselves safe. Everyone keeps saying you can't live in fear. I don't know how you not live in fear when you see what's going on in the world. So I think a little bit of fear is a good thing. Oh, um, yeah. It keeps your attention up, keeps you focused. Oh, yeah. Um, I think too much fear is the terrorist winning. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the responsibilities of a leadership of the countries in the West is to find the right balance there between helping people understand what the risks are, but not but not affecting the way they live day to day. Pretty easy question. Can we give one more in there Why just before we go? So bad? Why is the intelligence so bad? What was that? What was that? Charlie, could you, Charlie, could you, I'm sorry, Charlie, uh, um, that was not on the, that was not on the prompter. In the West is to find the right balance there between helping people understand what the okay. risks are, yeah. but not, but not affecting the way they live day to day. Wake up, Charlie. Wake up, Charlie. Why is the intelligence so bad? Because it's, it's, it's not easy to collect intelligence in a denied area, right? It's not easy to collect intelligence in a in a war zone. Right? We're not we're not on the ground in an embassy, right, in the middle of the Islamic mm-hmm. Caliphate. So collect so so developing human sources takes a lot of time. I'm absolutely confident it's going to get better. It's already gotten better, but it needs to be a lot better. And that's what you need to pick off these leaders. Yes, exactly. Does it mean we might have to give up some of our privacy for security? What the? What the? Oh, 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 geez. Uh, Gail, uh, I'm sorry. You just sat on a talking point there. 
I think we're going to have that debate again, right? And I think it is going to end up with more of a focus on security rather than privacy. I like, I like the spin on this. Do you realize what they just did? Did you hear it? I'm going to play it back. I want to make sure you heard it. To pick off these leaders. Yes, exactly. Does it mean we might have to give up some of our privacy for security? Some of our privacy for security. I think we're going to have that debate again, right? And I think it is going to end up with more of a focus on security rather than privacy. So a focus on security rather than privacy, to me, would imply security means breaking encryption and having back doors, fundamentally weakening the protection of technology. That's security. And privacy means encrypting your communications and having privacy from the government. So what we have done is we have equated security to having bad encryption. But we all know, as people who are actually familiar with technology, that you can't have good security without good encryption. But they have managed to pervert the debate in such to make it sound like that encryption means no security. Isn't that just brilliant? And the average people are just lapping it up, lapping it up. Absolutely confident it's going to get better. It's already gotten better, but it needs to be a lot better. And that's what you need to pick off these leaders. Yes, exactly. Does it mean we might have to give up some of our privacy for security? I think we're going to have that debate again, right? And I think it is going to end up with more of a focus on security rather than privacy. You, Man, they're just, you know, they're just asking the greatest questions. We've talked about, I mean, this is a game changer. Let's not forget the Beirut bombings. Let's not forget the downing of a Russian airplane and now Paris. Their reach is global. We are at a new place that we haven't been before, right, from two perspectives. One is their ability now to reach out and attack us where we live. And two, the types of targets they've chosen. Are you scared now? So traditionally, al-Qaeda went after big symbolic targets. I have been wondering, why would ISIS go after people? Why go after civilians? Why not go after bankers or politicians? Why not target a political area or something of some sort of significance, a monument of that kind? Why go after the people? It didn't, you know, it really didn't make any sense. Why go after the people? Right. From two perspectives. One is their ability now to reach out and attack us where we live. And two, the types of targets they've chosen. So traditionally, al-Qaeda went after big symbolic targets, right? Um, and the Pentagon, the World Trade Center. Ex- exactly. ISIS, you know, went after government targets, military targets. Um, Charlie Hebdo, you know, you, you can't sympathize with that, but you understand it, right? But when you go after targets where people conduct their lives every day, right, it creates a new dynamic. This is going to be embarrassing to you, Mike, but I just want to What could it be? It's going to be embarrassing to you, Mike. This is going to be oh, a hard question from Charlie Rose. You know, this man, he is a hardworking man. He's a reporter. He's well-respected. He likes to really nail people in the gut right on national television. Give it to him, Charlie. Say it. Uh, there's a blog, political blog called Playbook. says, good morning. Uh, the sharpest TV analyst on the Paris massacre has been Michael Morrell, deputy CIA director under Obama, and now with Beacon Global Strategies. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thanks. I don't think that's embarrassing at all. I like that. Thank you, Michael Moran. I'm glad you're at this table. Uh, uh, oh, wait, that wasn't a hard-hitting question at all. Oh, okay. And, of course, ISIS is in America. 
Back now with our Fox News alert. ISIS has just issued a new threat in the wake of the Paris attacks, saying America will be next. The U.S. government admits there are ongoing ISIS investigations. A.K.A. it's time to ramp it up here in the U.S. of A. It's not going away anytime soon, folks. In all 50 states. One of the biggest concerns, an area just outside of Minneapolis, Minnesota, where at least two dozen people, take a look at this right here, two dozen Young men have left to join the terrorists, and many of them succeeded and have not returned. Tom Lydon covers the terror beat for Fox 9 in Minnesota, and he knows these uh, stories inside and out. I actually don't even care what he has to say, but if you want to hear the rest of the three minutes, you can find it in the uh, supporters sync. But what I found to be the underscoring there is ISIS in America, and so we get to look forward to all of that goodness as well. It's coming to us as well. So there's your general uh, reactions to uh, the... Uh, Paris attacks. Uh, I have one more I want to play for you. And uh, I find this one, this is a very controversial man. He's a former U.S. Marine turned into an activist. And what, what I took away from this is, as I see here on the show, I'm a firm believer that uh, ISIS was created by Saudi Arabia, by the U.S., likely Israel as well. Turkey played a key involvement maybe in training. I mean, we're talking thousands and thousands and thousands of troops. We've armed them with U.S. guns. We've funneled that through Libya. We've given them Toyota trucks. We've dropped and resupplied them from the sky. We've been in an air, we've been in an air battle. The, the strongest military in the world has been in a battle for well over a year and can't get them. Can't, yet Russia jumps in and all of a sudden they're kicking ass. So when a former Marine came on the air and gave his version of the story, I couldn't help but sort of connect with it because I know that these monsters were created by these different organizations and governments and by individual backers as well. I, I hope – I don't know yet, but I hope we're going to get the names of individual backers even of ISIS. Who's buying the oil? Who's supplying them with the oil trucks? Where's that money coming from? Why, why are those nations not being called out? These people created this monster, and now those monsters are going around and killing innocent civilians. So when this guy got on the air, I have to say, I know he's controversial, but you know what? He made a lot of sense in this clip. Well, joining us uh, for the analytical part of this live coverage, we have Ken O'Keefe, former U.S. Marine, who joins us in the studios. And Ken O'Keefe, I'll start with you. Uh, this should, I would think, be a warning signal to some of the countries supporting the terrorists in the war in Syria, in particular the U.S., Turkey, and Saudi Arabia. Yes, well, I hope actually that it's even more of a wake-up call for us to realize that we are ISIS, that the Western governments that are in bed with Saudi Arabia, who is the primary funder of ISIS, along with Qatar and other Gulf states, we not only provide the political cover and military assistance to Saudi Arabia while it slaughters innocent people in Yemen, but we also provide the cover for them to go ahead and do their dirty dealing with these psychopaths who are running around Syria and other parts of the world as well, Iraq. Let us remember that before the United States invaded Iraq, there was no al-Qaeda in Iraq. Look at it today. Let us also remember that when uh, Qaddafi was in power in Libya, there was very little al-Qaeda. And in fact, now we look at it, and it's an absolute basket case full of these operatives. And we look to Syria as well as yet another example of where these problems were actually quite under control in terms of al-Qaeda. In fact, Bashar al-Assad was assisting the United States. This is all on record in a very meaningful way. In fact, many of the tortures that were being carried out were being done by Bashar al-Assad, or at least his regime, in order to extract information from people that we were supposedly fighting. 
as in the CIA actually worked with the Assad regime to carry out their extradition programs and do the torture. There was a period of time where we were working with them to do the torture for us. I believe that it is beyond any doubt for any sensible person to realize that not only is the United States providing the financial cover, military cover, and the trucks, political cover for these terrorists through our proxies, but we've also, in pure technical sense, provided the training for these people in Jordan and Turkey. Another one of our best friends has been shuttling these psychopaths across the country from Turkey into Syria for a long time now. So, the idea that the West is actually fighting a war against ISIS is beyond ridiculous. So what we really need to do is start realizing the fact that we are ISIS, and the reason why our corrupt, treasonous governments are carrying out these policies is because they do not represent us, they represent the bankers, and the bankers make a hell of a lot of money off of war, and more importantly... Hoorah! I love this guy. Anyways, you can watch the rise of the glass. I just thought, man, what a good rant. And I, I was in the mood for a rant after all of this. Uh, go look out, uh, go just look up a few uh, stocks, like, I don't know, uh, Lockheed Martin would be a good one to look up, Raytheon, how are they, how are they doing right now? See how they're doing. So this was actually what I thought was going to make a big show. Friday, as a Friday story, Jihadi John, he's been caught, busted, he's dead. And I thought, all right, now we're going to have a big unfiltered. Little did I know. I'll have 72 hours. He's been one of the most haunting voices and brutal killers in all of ISIS. It's only right we continue to strike the necks of your people. And now it appears that Jihadi John's reign of terror is over. Tonight, the U.S. military says it is confident that a drone strike in Raqqa, Syria, killed the British-born Mohammed Mwazi. And this guy was a human animal, uh, and, and killing him uh, is probably making the world a little bit better place. CNN has learned that the U.S. had been secretly tracking the infamous ISIS frontman in Raqqa for several days. Using three MQ-9 Reaper drones, American and British, like this one, to track his movements and listen in on his conversations. By Wednesday, the intelligence was firm, and the mission was a go. After zeroing in on him in Raqqa, the U.S. watched as he walked out of a building and got into a vehicle. Three drones overhead fired two missiles into the vehicle, killing the man believed to be Jihadi John. Three drones. Certainly the uh, role that Mr. Mwazi has played uh, in radicalizing individuals around the world and inspiring uh, individuals to join their cause uh, made him uh, a threat not just to the region, uh, but to um, countries around the world. If confirmed, the strike would be a significant intelligence victory in a country where until recently the U.S. had thin intelligence assets. So I happen to know that Obama had planned to have a little victory speech about this particular strike uh, before uh, some of the attacks in Paris happened. He was going to uh, stretch his stuff and be like, yeah, look at us. Look at us go. And the intelligence agencies were, look at our smart intelligence. This was an obvious, like, blowback to the Russia's propaganda has been coming out. Look at Russia striking all these ISIS targets. Now, this is the U.S. saying, look at us stepping up. We're taking major blows against ISIS. This is an obvious counterbalance to all of the stuff coming out of Russia. And it was planned and timed so perfectly if those darn Paris attacks hadn't happened. However, recent operations have killed three senior ISIS leaders. Abu Sayyaf in a special forces raid. Recruiter Janaid Hussein in an airstrike. 
and now apparently Jihadi John. There will always be somebody to take these people's place. Yes, we should go after them, but we also have to realize that they're going to regenerate their leadership cadre and they're going to bring people in that we've never heard of before and then the process starts over again. Oh, good, good. I look forward to that. Let's just have a little recycling process. Sounds like ISIS recycles. That's nice. While we're on the topic of ISIS, guess what? They've been blamed also for that Russia jet that got bombed. Well, that's the word in Egypt. Good evening. We begin with a potentially ominous turn in the investigation into that Russian air disaster over Egypt. A U.S. official late today told NBC News that evidence indicates it was likely a bomb, possibly planted by ISIS operatives, that brought the Airbus 321 down over the Sinai Desert, killing all 224 people aboard. If proven, it represents a new and more lethal ISIS capability with far-reaching security implications for airline passengers and beyond. The story is still developing. Let's get right to Cairo. Our Bill Neely is there with late details. For five days, investigators have searched the wreckage for clues that cause a mystery. Now a U.S. official tells NBC News evidence indicates it was likely a bomb. The suspicion it was placed on board by ground crew or baggage handlers and that ISIS is responsible. It's a strong suspicion, not a conclusion, and no evidence of a bomb has been found yet in the debris. But it's a suspicion shared by Britain. We have concluded that there is a significant possibility that that crash was caused by an explosive device on board the aircraft. Britain is suspending all flights to the airport where the plane took off. Officials won't say if intelligence comes from the crash site or the flight data recorders, which are still being analysed. And no one is ruling out the possibility of a technical fault on the plane. One hard piece of evidence, a US satellite strongly suggesting an explosion. A heat flash detected at the time of the disaster can only have come from a catastrophic fault causing the fuel tank to explode or a bomb. Russian doctors report the injuries of those in the back of the plane match an explosion. But the mere suspicion this was a bomb raises this disaster to a new level. We obviously have a strong desire to uh, get to the bottom of what exactly happened there. Getting an explosive device onto an aircraft in this region is just a real game changer for security. U.S. aircraft have long been warned away from this area. The FAA advising airlines should avoid flying into or over the Sinai Peninsula. Oh, sorry. Yikes. Uh, I was just going to mention, too, uh, this sort of changes Russia's approach to ISIS. Uh, Putin's made some pretty big uh, claims now and uh, basically says, we're going to find you anywhere you are and come get you. Today, Russian bombers pounded ISIS targets in Syria, pairing airstrikes with 34 cruise missiles launched at ISIS fighters. In all, 127 strikes of retaliation for the ISIS downing of a Russian commercial jet. And President Putin promised this was just the beginning. We will search for them everywhere, wherever they are hiding. We will find them in any spot on the planet and we will punish them. Yikes. After the crash, Putin... All right, so we'll stop there. You can watch the whole uh, clip in the show notes. But geez, yeah. So now ISIS has France going all in, going after them. You've got Russia. You've got the U.S. working now with Russia. And you even supposedly have Putin saying, yeah, I think Assad, I think there's some flexibility there. Why don't we coordinate on some of the targets now? 
wow. It seems like th- these three nations alone, let alone the whole coalition, should be able to wipe out ISIS in a matter of days, I would think. But who knows? A little bit uh, back here in the U.S. for a moment. Uh, it's a really kind of actually a global story, but it really is a huge part of U.S. politics. It's the Keystone XL pipeline, which got a major decision this week. Good morning, everybody. Several years ago, the State Department began a review process for the proposed construction of a pipeline that would carry Canadian crude oil through our heartland to ports in the Gulf of Mexico and out into the world market. Uh, This morning, Secretary Kerry informed me that after extensive public outreach and consultation with other cabinet agencies, the State Department has decided that the Keystone XL pipeline would not serve the national interests of the United States. Oh. I agree with that decision. This morning, I also had the opportunity to speak with Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada. And while he expressed his disappointment, given Canada's position on this issue, we both agreed that our close friendship on a whole range of issues, including energy and climate change, should provide the basis for even closer coordination between our countries going forward. So there you go. Keystone XL Pipeline is dead. Wow. Now, there is so much happening this week that uh, I, I, I could just keep going. And, there's, and I don't know exactly how next week is going to work. It is tough because the Unfilter Show takes an intense amount of work. Uh, to be honest with you, I, I ran the risk of even harming the other shows this week because this is a pre-holiday week. And so we have double recordings for a couple of our shows. And the Unfiltered shows took such intense research and concentration to get done that I ran the risk of potentially harming the other shows like Linux Action Show and TextNet. So I have to walk that line very closely. And so I'm not entirely sure I will be able to do a show next week, meet my commitments on our other shows, and also attend family holiday events because it's Thanksgiving here in the U.S., All of that is my way of saying, though, that we could very much use your support because this show takes a ton of work. And I think now more than ever, we are recording a people's history of some very important moments. I don't know exactly what these are leading to, but it could be leading to some major events in history. And we're watching it right now, not from the perspective of Fox News or the perspective of the White House. We are watching it from the perspective of the people. And when we make a mistake, we make a correction, but it is funded by the people, oriented for the people and delivered to the people. Recorded by the people. Isn't that something? Patreon.com slash unfilter. Please support this show and keep us going. And I apologize if I cannot get it all together for next week. It is just an intense couple of weeks with the holidays. And these news stories have been absolutely nuts. Although, I, I, I got to say, if there's some crazy developments, I'm, I'm going to try to squeeze it in sometime. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to try. Uh, Patreon.com slash unfilter. Help support us. As I wrap up here, check the calendar, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. And I want to leave you with a high note, something to take us out after a pretty intense show today. Medical marijuana hitting store shelves today in Illinois. WFLD reporter Elizabeth Matthews on what it means for sellers and buyers. We're excited. We're nervous. It's uh, a lot of mixed emotions. Uh, But we're really excited to finally be able to deliver this medicine to so many people that are in need. One of those patients counting down the days is Bill Wilson, who used to be a skeptic. To be quite frank, if you had been talking to me two years ago, I would have been one of the people. 
that would have considered a stigma for other people. The now registered cardholder says he suffers from bulging discs and arthritis of the spine. Wilson says he wants to get off painkillers. I've never smoked pot in my life, and taking pills all the time, it's just, it's eating up my stomach. It's just, it's terrible. EarthMed in Addison will open their doors at stocked shelves. For the first couple weeks, we're only going to have flour-based products. Right now, dispensaries are only carrying dry flour products that you can smoke, vape, and cook with. It will look like this in child-resistant, tamper-evident packaging. Ben Kovler with the Clinic Mundelein says they are expecting to see hundreds of patients day one. The key kink is all of a sudden when we're a go, there's not enough supply. But we do know that's happened in every other state and it's going to come. So we're just urging patience on the part of patients. Besides patience, he says keep an open mind. The dispensaries are most likely not what you're expecting. There is no dried marijuana sitting out. It's not what you see in Colorado. It's not a head shop. This is not Cheech and Chong. It's a very professional medical establishment. Well, that was Elizabeth Matthews reporting. Store owners expect the demand to grow in the coming months. Mm. You know, I just got back from Colorado, went to Denver. Rover Log, episode 15. I actually stopped by a recreational pot shop. I, uh, I included that in the Rover Log. If you haven't seen that yet, it's worth checking out. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash rover to see that. But uh, congratulations to those of you in Illinois. I'm sure you're very excited. All right, well, that'll bring me to the end of episode 166 of the Unfiltered Show. If you enjoyed this show a little bit and you think, gosh, I'd even like more show, you might want to be an Unfiltered supporter. If you get in at the couple dollar level, you get the supporter show, which is the pre and post show. And then if you get on at the five dollar level or more, you get the source code, all the clips, the art, the notes, the assets that make all of this. You want to hear something? You want to play it back a few more times if I talked over it or didn't play the whole thing? Oh, man. So much extra stuff in the supporters thing gets to the $5 level. And if you're the Swag Club member level, there might be some stuff coming your way. Unfiltered.reddit.com to add more content to this show, to give us some feedback, to engage with the community. Unfiltered.reddit.com. There is a ton of stuff in the show notes this week, and I could use your help parsing it. There's another two episodes just in this show's information alone. And I make a sincere plea. If you could go to the show notes, parse some of it, and extract interesting tidbits, put it in paste bins, organize it in a thread, if we could get a lot of information put together, and I I make this plea to you, there's a lot of good stuff in the show notes that I could not cover. Maybe I could slip something in next week as a special for the supporters or something. There's so much good content that, honestly, we need more staff. It is ridiculous. And uh, right now, maybe I could just crowdsource that, unfiltered.reddit.com. Go look at the show notes for 166, parse it out there, engage with the community. Don't forget, you can join us live. Just check the calendar, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. Shout out to Mr. Chase. Hope to see you soon back on the show, sir. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of Unfiltered. And I hopefully will see you right back here next week. And if I don't, have a great holiday here in the U.S. (laughs) 